information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of Blue Crew Medicine. Today we're going to do septic shock, so uh, specifically pediatric septic shock. Joined today by Dr. Nathan Freeman again. Welcome back, bro. Glad to be back. And uh, the Hayden Dancy as well, joining us, and myself, Will Appleby. So let's just get right down into it as far as pediatric septic shock. So this is kind of something that's becoming more and more prevalent. It's that time of year we start dealing with a lot of peds with different illnesses, ailments, virus, the daycare stuff's going around, flu, RSV, all the fun things. Um, when I start thinking about septic shock, to me, I think more of adults, but with kids, it's just as prevalent and commonly seen. So getting right down into it, let's talk about assessment and figuring out, hey, this is sepsis or is this something else? So right off the bat, first things first, let's just kind of talk about it, history. Source control, finding a source, History is probably the most important factor you can have as far as figuring out if it's sepsis or if it's something else. What do y'all see or what are the questions you may ask or try to figure that out for your patients you see? So I feel like history in the pediatric world, you either get way too much or not enough at all because a lot of your parents will come in and they'll be trying to tell you everything they could possibly remember about their child. You know, they've had this many fevers for this many months getting them to hone in on what's going on right now sometimes is the difficult part. And then other times you'll have parents that don't want to tell you anything. Oh, they're sick. And that's really where they leave it. And they don't really expound any more than that. Um, so really focusing in on the history, you know, are they in daycare? Are they exposed to um, other people in the home that have been sick? Are they running fever? Um, is that fever subjective more times than not? You know, in our department, I know it's subjective fever. Oh, I didn't check it. He just felt hot. They put that mom or dad thermometer on the back of the forehead. And, you know, I swear sometimes they'll come up with numbers. Oh, he felt like he was about 103. And well, that's impressive. 112 is my personal thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You hear that all the time. Um, you know, and then focusing in on symptoms. Is this, you know, more URI type things? Has it developed into a progressive cough? Or is it like a localized infection? Say maybe, you know, he's got this spot on his leg that started off as an insect bite and now it's red and swollen. And over the last couple of days, he just hasn't been acting himself and now he's running fever. Things like that. You kind of have to discern the difference and, you know, which system are we going down or is it gone systemic as a whole? Yeah, and I feel like once you recognize that a child was ill um, and in a way to keep the parents from, like, going off the rails on three months worth of history, some of the more targeted stuff you try to ask in addition to fever is how their PO intake is, any vomiting, diarrhea. That way you look at those losses because a lot of times kids will come in, um, not just septic shock, but like a combination of like that and hypovolemic shock or their tachycardia is just hypovolemia after you've um, treated the fever. So it's good to kind of get that volume status type of um, info in. Um, the other big things with medical history um, we all know whenever you ask someone to have medical problems, they'll say no, and then you find a laundry list later. But specifically trying to get parents to target in on any cancers, uh, chronic steroid use, any heart conditions, because those type of things will help direct your management later on as far as antibiotic choices, whether or not to give steroids, things like that. So that'd be more the targeted questions in the history I'd want to know from a family before I go down the train of treating uh, septic shock. Yeah. And a lot of the times to kind of piggyback off that is they'll focus on one thing. Either they'll come in for the vomiting and diarrhea and the decreased PO intake, and then they forget all about the fever that they had or vice versa. And like Nathan said, you know, typically in pediatrics, you're looking at more than one kind of shock. If it gets to that state, usually septic shock in adults too, I guess, is all, almost walks hand in hand with hypovolemic shock. Um, so it's important to really kind of get the whole picture. And how long they've been upset, all those interstitial losses that occur. I think with kids, it's like, all right, well, when did you, mom or dad, notice they've been feeling bad? Hey, can you think about how long they've been feeling bad? Or even can you ask daycare or somebody else has been taking care of the kid? 
that's also the challenging thing with adults is who really cares for the kid? Who's really around? Who's been paying attention? Who noticed this? Is yeah. this just a, hey, you can't go back to daycare soon you go to the ER? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or is this, yeah. hey, I really picked up on something. Right. Yeah. Moving on down the list, kind of for our assessment, vital signs and what's normal. Uh, kids are a challenge, right? They're not all 120 over 80 or 130 over 90 or whatever number you want to pick today. Mm-hmm. Um, are they tachycardic? Are they upset? Is their blood pressure normal? You do need to check a blood pressure in these kids. That's yeah, not that's something you just totally throw out. Throw that uh, facet out the window. But are they tachycardic? Tachycardia to me is one of the easiest things you can kind of look at. And then also what's the respiratory rate? Right. Are they necessary, not necessarily short of breath? Are they, you know, tachypnic, some asthma exacerbation, watching them breathing 60 times a minute? But are they breathing faster than they should be? Can you tell they're working to breathe? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of the times when you talk about pediatric vital signs, a lot of providers, whether that's an EMS or local emergency departments, they get so fixated on the numbers, right? Rather than looking at the patient and assessing the patient, you're going to know when you walk in the room, are they breathing fast or slow? That's the first thing you really got to decide before we, you know, oh, they're breathing 27 times a minute. No, you know, fast or slow. And then when you put your, you know, put your fingers on any pulse point or put your stethoscope on their chest, you're going to be able to tell, wow, their heart is racing. Or you can see it on the monitor. If you've got that many QRS complexes, mm-hmm. you know, then we know something's moving on. Uh, along a little bit too quicker than we'd like for it. Um, then you kind of got to decide, well, okay, why is this a respiratory issue? Are they tachycardic because of their fever? You know, all kinds of different reasons could, you know, all kinds of things could point to vital sign changes. So that's something to take into account. And then, yeah, like you said, blood pressure, um, so many places now will just unable to obtain blood pressure. You know, the kid was kicking or screaming, couldn't get it, didn't want to upset them. Blood pressure is important, um, but remember, it is a late sign of decompensation. If we're talking about hypotension, we're talking about children. But you have to have an initial one to know, you know, where we're going from there. Is it staying the same or is it kind of starting to trickle down? So if we don't get an early blood pressure in somebody that we're concerned that could potentially have sepsis or septic shock, you know, that's not going to put us in a good place when we're trying to figure out where we're headed. Yeah, I would echo what Aiden said your exam is going to be key. Like your monitor can lie to you, especially if you're gauging respiratory rate in like an infant or something like that. Um, And then on top of that, your cat refill. As we've gotten further and further away from, from labeling as warm and cold shot, because all the studies show it doesn't really matter. um, Having cat refill, tachycardia, fever, or even hypothermia. So that'd be something else. So if you're like 96.5 and below, Think about sepsis in those kids, you, especially in the young kids who don't have the reserve, don't have the um, ability to maintain their own core body temp. Um, that can also be a sign of sepsis. So cat refill, um, tachycardia, temp, and then that blood pressure. Do your best to get one, especially like it's going to help guide your management later on. I think it's interesting to know the cat refill stuff. There's a lot of the studies coming with adults, especially in sepsis and how you need to trend cat refill, but pay attention to it. It's no different in kids in that same. It's all, all it could across. Something else just to reemphasize the emphasis of trends. Trends are great. You need to pay attention to them. The numbers help you kind of identify the trends, especially when you're swapping providers. So if you're working EMS and you pick somebody, some kid up and you say, Hey, yeah, they're sick. How do you articulate? Hey, this kid is sick to, the small town ER, great, okay, they can see the kid, but how does that uh, definitive center, like they say they're getting transferred here and they're going from, I don't know, an hour and a half away, they come to a small ER. Well, if you if we can look at the EMS report or get the EMS finding and say, hey, well, their heart rate was initially 120 and now it's 180, that's a big difference, right? So understanding, being able to articulate those trends are just as important. Again, looking at the kid, but being able to show and say, hey, this is what so the next provider can figure out, hey, this is a problem or not. And especially like we talk about age, um, stratification of vital signs. There's a ton of resources out there. PALS, I believe we had like an EMS uh, crew book that we pass around the state. And when in doubt, if you take a, especially peds, if you take a um, clinical concern you're worried about, Google it with CHOP pathway, you will find something. If you look up the CHOP, uh, pediatric septic CHOP pathway, they have a, 
reference value for vital signs by age for your heart rate, your respiratory rate, systolic blood pressure, diastolic. Like there, there's sources out there for you. And CHOP, for those of you that don't know, that's Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania or Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Philadelphia, yeah, Pennsylvania. Yeah. You know, um, they're kind of one of the leaders in pediatric care in the U.S. And we use that same thing with our resuscitation guide that Eric here and Peds and all of us put out here at MCS. It, it's a really a great resource and it's easy to find, easy to look at. Um, I think pretty much everybody in Peds, EM, PICU, and here all uses that yeah. same yeah. same stuff. So moving on to assessment, moving through it, big things, cap refill, look at your kid, trend your kid. All right, hey, this is what I got. And then something else, like we didn't really say it, but we kind of beat around it. Emotional distress can, yes, that can make your kid's heart rate go up, this, that, and the other. Remember how you approach these kids, come in with a calming manner. You know, it's a scary environment for them. You're new, you're a stranger. Just take two seconds, be calm about it. Don't just rush in the door, lights and sirens, blaring everything, screaming at a kid or anything like that or loud or anything else, try to get a good, true assessment. If it takes you an extra five minutes to really calm the kid down or get a comfortable where you can get a blood pressure, can get a heart rate that's accurate, do it. And then if they're agitated after you've done everything that Will just said, if you've, you know, calming environment, dark room, you've done everything, you've fed them, if, you know, if they're like a breastfed baby or something like that, you've treated the fever and they're still like agitated, irritable, that may be one of your signs that this kid is septic. It may be like a meningitis or a bacteremia. If they're just unconsolable no matter what, that'll be something to note whenever you're sending them our way. And then I guess inversely of that, I worry about the kid that comes in that is not agitated at all, that is doing nothing, mm. that is not acting age appropriate to all these interventions. If I'm poking and prodding and, you know, looking in ears and their throat and they're just kind of lying there listless on the bed, that's going to tell me a lot more about their clinical status and where we are. And usually, and not only in septic shock, but anything, anytime you worry about anything severe in pediatrics, that's going to be on the more severe end of the spectrum of where we are in the disease. We've probably already progressed to a point that we are behind the eight ball and we really need to get things moving. So jumping right into management, couple things I want to make sure we talk about are fluid boluses and what we're actually going to do with those vasopressors and then antipyretics and how we administer them, how we give them those kinds of things. Fluid boluses. So we've already talked pretty good about most of these kids are going to be dehydrated or at least volume down a little bit just because of what's going on with the disease process. You identify it, sepsis. What do y'all do as far as fluid boluses? What is the trends y'all like to see or what do you, how do you, how do you play that card? So early fluids matter more than what you're giving. Like, yes, you want to give isotonic fluids, but to like go over, like, do you need normal saline, LR, plasma light? In the end, it really doesn't matter. Um, several studies show that there's different people that prefer normal saline and some that say LR is better. Generally, you're doing 10 to 20 milliliters per kilogram uh, boluses. You tend to give them fast if you're truly worried about the patient being septic. This isn't one you're going to hang over an hour and then wait forever. Um, don't be afraid to push, pull it, give it every five to 10 to 15 minutes. Um, and then whenever I do that, um, this is where your assessment, like reassessing after interventions really comes in because yes, your heart rate may or may not go down. Um, but you need to like listen to those lungs. Is there a sign of pulmonary edema you didn't have before? Is your cat refill getting better? Are they getting more, um, puffy, get more edematous and your fluids are causing more harm than good. Um, those are the things like after each bolus, I'm going to look at that before I keep giving them more fluids before I go into the next thing. Right. Yeah. So constantly reassessing, especially once you've decided we've moved on from, you know, a general febrile illness to the sepsis, septic shock standpoint of things. Like we said before, you don't really know that this is only septic shock or hypovolemic shock. You have to reassess. You could give 120 per kg bolus and now you, you know, you hear a gallop or you hear crackles in the lungs. And now we have to start thinking kind of more heart side of things, but yet they still need fluid. So things can get kind of tricky in how you have to balance that. Um, but you can't balance it if you're not reassessing adequately. Um, can't know where you're going. So um, I would agree. I think isotonics, you know, obviously is the main thing. So especially when we're talking rural ERs, um, EMS, not everybody's going to have LR. Not everybody's going to have plasma light. Almost everybody's going to have normal saline. If that's what you have, that's fine. 
Um, there's, you know, a couple studies out now talking about plasma light. I wish there were more. Yes, they do encourage if you think you're going to be giving multiple fluid boluses. Studies are starting to show that plasma light is probably better long term, but none of those studies were done in pediatrics. So, you know, we can't, we can't can say that of, for sure yet. Yeah, we think that's where we're headed, but we're not there yet. So just focus on the isotonics, whichever of those three you have, that is more than enough. The only time that I will go away from that 10 to 20 per kg and tend to go a little bit slower, like 5 to 10 per kg, if you know they have like a complex heart history. Um, if you know that they have some pulmonary edema, but they also have a delayed cat refill where you're trying to play that weird little balancing game. Um, if they have any renal dysfunction, so like a chronic, uh, chronic kidney disease kid where you're not wanting to fluid overload them. And then there is some talks about like anemia. So if you know that they're hemoglobin less than seven and their volume down, that may be the one instance you give blood, but it's going to be very, very, very rare. You give saline if that's what you need when they're hypotensive tachycardic. Yeah. And to me, a couple of those, you got to really make sure that hemoglobin is accurate. There's a lot of times we get it a missed sample or a bad sample or it's diluted down or whatever. Right. I'm really cautious with even thinking about blood in these. Same. For me, it's, you know, you're always safe giving 10 per kilo pretty much no matter what it is. Again, the heart kids, I still get down to five. But most of the time, even if you're you're nervous about giving some kid fluid, hey, give them 10 per kilo, reassess, and go from there. The one, um, the one heart kid, like, population is, like, if, they're, if they tell you that they're a hypoplast and they have a Fontan, a dry Fontan is a dead Fontan. Don't be afraid to give those fluids if they're dry, tachycardic, and they don't look volume overloaded. That's the one population I'll tend to, on the initial bolus, do something normal like a 10 to 20, and then after that, cut down to what you would do in an otherwise, like, the 5 to 10 kids. Right, because that Fontan is so preload dependent based Everything off the physiology that we've given them mm -hmm. in that surgery. So, And, you know, the whole blood thing. Yeah, early on, unless you're in that perfect storm that, you know, mom was on her way to the hospital with the kid that's been running fever for a week and they got into a car accident and now we're bleeding. <laughs> sure. Good luck is all I can tell you there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there will obviously be cases that, you know, it will be warranted. Your profound, you know, leukemic child that, you know, is just in extremis. There's always the unicorn. But, you know, up front, the first line is always going to be your fluids. Mm -hmm. Something to important to mention about fluids is how you give them, but how warm are they? If you've got these kids that are in the hypothermic state and they're cold already and you're giving something out of the back of an ambulance, it's freaking, you know, it's December and it's 20 degrees outside and that truck's been sitting there and it's cold as ice. You're not really helping that kid either. No. So warm them up if you got them or figure out how to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess while we're on fluids, we should probably talk a little bit about access. Um, yeah. And I think it's beat to death in the pediatric world. You know, you shouldn't waste around, you know, minutes to hours trying to get IV access. This is where your IO is going to come in handy. Correct. Uh, you can give enormous amounts of fluids, medications, whether that be vasopressors, antibiotics. All of that works just fine through your IO. Um, you know, review your sites. You know, some places are approved depending on your provider and to do different locations in pediatrics but wherever you know your location says you're approved for don't be afraid to start ios early if you cannot get IV access know that ios are not long term but they allow you that resuscitation phase to be able to place other lines whether they be ivs central lines things like that correct because in the end and i tell like residents this all the time it's not the blood culture. It's not the LP. Those needles aren't what's saving the kid. It's going to be the fluids and the antibiotics. So if you can't get access, I owe them. If you can't draw back, who cares? Give them the fluids. Give them the antibodies. You do what you got to do. To, that's going to save the kid in the end. Right. Something else I wanted to mention real fast is, is dextrose in those fluids or just keep in mind of dextrose. These kids are going to, they usually are high metabolic rate. They're going to cook through it. They don't have that dextrose reserve. Don't necessarily, okay, we're not going to give them loads and loads of D50. They don't need all the cake icing in the world, but be mindful. They're going to need to be on some kind of maintenance on top of this fluid stuff to maintain their glucose as well. Yeah. Well, even, and they're already hypermetabolic just based off their normal physiology. So if we're already talking about an infant that's in septic shock, we've sped that up even more. So that may be one of the first things they come in for is because they're listless. Well, we get a blood sugar and it's 20 and that's why they're listless lethargic. Oh, by the way, they're in septic shock. 
that blood sugar was the first thing we saw. So you're kind of having to really reassess that. You may be, that may be the one instance where you're giving dextrose boluses to, you know, for a mental status change, but also this is part of their sepsis picture that you're having to treat at the same time. And don't forget that'll add up to your um, fluid volume too. So a lot of those kids will be hypoglycemic because their disease process. And so if they're in the thirties, forties, fifties, and you have to give a dextrose bolus, Instead of trying to push something thick like a D50 or D25, give them a D10 bolus. You do five per kg of that, five mLs per kg, and that's a pretty, you know, have a good uh, fluid bolus. So that adds up to your fluid resuscitation on those kids. Just something to be mindful of is how much volume you're giving them all this time, time like you're talking about. But, hey, use it to your advantage. If you got to give them dextrose, give them some volume too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So fluids are usually the first thing we get to. Then we realize, hey, fluids aren't working. We give them one or two. For me, if I give a kid a fluid bolus after that and they're not getting any better, they're delayed cap refill, their heart rate's still high or whatever, and they're still getting the same picture in the back of my head, and I get us, I'm pretty proactive as a clinician in general, but I'm already thinking pressors. Definitely after two, start thinking vasopressors. For y'all, vasopressors of choice, everybody, you can – Everybody has their own opinion. Everybody has their own thoughts. But what are you all thinking as far as vasopressors when you think of pediatric septic shock? Usually for sepsis, I go norepi is my first line. There, You can go through all the different studies and they all go back and forth, epi, norepi. Um, if you don't have norepi, epi is completely fine. My general first line is usually norepi. Um, I'll usually do it at um, like 0.05 uh, mics per kg per minute and then you go up from there. Um if I'm starting to get to like, you know, 0.5, um, 0.6 per kg per minute, I'm going to start thinking about what my second line is going to be. Because at that point, they're not responding as well to that that catecholamine surge that you're giving them. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I kind of use the rule of halves is what I call it. There's no evidence to that other than a lot of people, you know, follow that three bolus guideline. Like I've got to give three boluses before I start a presser. If I've given one like Will said, I'm starting to think about it for sure after I've given two. And then as I get into my pressors, that kind of rule of halves is once I get halfway up the dosing ladder on those medications, that's kind of when I start thinking it's time to add another one. And then if I add that second one, while I'm still titrating one and two, I'm probably starting to think about a third one if my clinical picture is not improving. Um, You know, to each their own, but that's kind of where I go. And then I would agree, you know, to me, you treat the shock you have in front of you. 99% of the time, it's warm shock that we're looking at. So Levofed is going to be your first line choice there. And then Epi coming after that. But again, like Nathan said, if Epi is what you have, then please don't wait around on the Levofed to get there. If you know somebody's in a shock-like state, go ahead and start the Epi. Yeah. And usually if, I've, you know, if I'm talking second line, like I've given the Epi, it's not really working. I'm not going to add epi on top of that because I'm already giving um, uh, like catecholamine um, type of presser. So usually I'll go to the vaso after that and start titrating that up. Um, usually if you're starting to get to a second line presser vaso, hopefully you you know called into us, called in you know for some help. But generally, if you can't get to us, some you know perfect storm, um, twelve milli units per kg per hour, um, just starting, and then at that point, hopefully you know they're getting shipped out to us. I think for a lot of people, it's, you know, Levo is pretty common now. Pretty A lot of ambulances even have it. It's 0.5 to 2 mics per kilo per minute. Epi, if anything's ever bradycardic, I always go to Epi. That's mm-hmm. just me. Um, 0.05 to 1 mics per kilo per minute. I'm a big fan of Azo, especially because I'm all adult world. Um, 0.05 to 2 milliunits per kilo per minute. Um, there's some conversion factors you can do. 10 to 50 is the other way you can word that, but um, kind of depends on what your your institution or your protocols or whatever they say. But typically when you talk to people, it's 0.05 to 2 million units per kilo per minute. And don't be scared of using kids. That's one of the big emphasis I wanted to say today mm-hmm. is Vasa works. It works really well in aesthetic environments and it works really well for kids. I'm with Aiden. I mean, like I said, you start, you get them on one, I'm halfway through it or even two thirds of the way through it. If they're two thirds of the way through it, I'm already hung it. Yeah. Um, halfway, I'm kind of thinking of talking to them or working with, Hey, this is what I'm doing. This is why I'm thinking that way. Um, but I'm pretty quick to hang the vaso behind them. Yeah. What are y'all's thoughts on dopamine? Just cause it's been, 
so it's such a you know when I started in this you can only use dopamine you could thou shalt not use anything else ever um do you see it working as effectively in peed sepsis these days or is it just uh I haven't used it and I've been trained away against it over the last 10 years and then the newest surviving sepsis um peds literature is all saying basically avoid it unless it is literally the only pressure you have available in your hospital um yeah. it tended to not improve outcomes whatsoever versus like epi nor epi or even like just keeping on giving fluids right so I, I avoid do uh, dopamine at all costs yeah honestly i think i can remember the last time i used it it was a pediatric septic shock case um in north mississippi and that's been eight years ago now that i used it and i I think it has largely fallen out of favor. Uh, it's been a long time that I can remember going to pick somebody up or a patient coming into our ER on dopamine, um, which I think is good because it is falling more in line with national guidelines. Um, on your, like we talked about access earlier and then with pressors. So if, as long as you're staying like in the lower doses of your pressors, it is okay to run it through a PIV for a very short amount of time. So we're talking about under an hour. If you think that they're going to be on that pressure longer than an hour, the transport's going to be a long, like hours, um, those would be the ones you want to consider some type of central access, getting some help. Or, um, you know, that may be a air care transport thing. Um, but if you feel comfortable in like a bigger kid, those may be the ones you truly consider a central line. And we hold off on those a lot in peds. But if you're true, if you're getting towards pressers and getting towards that half the max dose, start, start thinking about it. Yeah. And the caveat to that, you know, if you are comfortable putting that central line in a, right. you know, one-year-old child, if you're not, then, you know, by all means, we're not asking you to do something that you aren't trained on or aren't comfortable with. You can continue to run it through peripheral access, but yes, it is not ideal. Right. Um, and the infiltration stuff is the stuff that scares me more than anything else is you have yeah. infiltrating an infant and y'all all seen it too. It's not ideal. No, no, no. You're talking about, you know, if they survive their profound sepsis, you're talking about loss of limbs, you know, at certain points in that limb. And that's the main reason you try to avoid it. Yeah. And, and yet there is some absorption physiology in there as well, as far as how it's utilized, but you know, it's more long stream, uh, downstream effects that we're worried about. Um, I'll touch on one thing we didn't have on here. Um, since we mentioned central lines, it kind of piggybacks onto it, um, is the use of, arterial lines um i know i've trained in a place where i've heard the phrase an arterial line never saved anybody's life i get it and i understand but they can be used to guide resuscitation um that is coming of high favor in the adult world over the last 10 to 15 years um it is my personal practice again it's one of those you know to the level of your training if you have been trained to do that in this age population and you're comfortable doing that skill that is great um, there's a lot of literature out there originally in the adult world that said cuff pressures versus A-line pressures could be as much as 40%, you know, in difference. Anecdotally, I've seen at least a good 20 to 30% after I place arterial line. And I think there is some new pediatric literature coming out to kind of support that too. Do not waste time if it's a time thing, you know, trying to get arterial line. But it's one of those if you've got to wait on a transport team for an hour or you've got a two hour transport and you have that availability as far as a protocol, it is definitely something to consider to give yourself a more accurate picture of exactly what's going on when we're talking about this severe of a patient. And usually I'm doing arterial lines if I'm starting pressors. Like if right. you're able to resuscitate them with just fluids, you're not doing pressors, then, you know, probably want to hold off because the same risk as we talked about with central lines. Um, but yeah, if I'm starting Norepi, if I'm starting Vaso, if I'm especially starting both of them, uh, A-Line really helps with guiding resuscitation and titration of those drugs. It's a, they're extreme benefit in the transport role where you don't always have accurate pressures, your airframe's out of track, you're going through some of our wonderful roads here in the state or wherever where it's bumpy and you don't feel like you're the kid's agitator, this, that, and the other, that art line's going to help you out a lot. And to me, just anecdotally, the patients that we're dealing with, whether it's adult or pediatrics that are sick okay they whether it's a profound head bleed and we're trying to do hypertension control in an adult or it's a ped sepsis case or an adult sepsis case those art line versus couplers repressors are even more of a difference to me when they're truly sick versus someone of normal physiology or relatively healthy 
Sure. Uh, the trauma patient that we're just, okay, we got to get them volume back. Those ones are pretty much the same um, in a lot of cases, but the, the true sepsis pictures, the true, you know, intracranial stuff that can make a big difference. Yeah. Moving right down the list. So we talked a little bit about pressors. Kind of wanted you, you brought this up, Nathan. The the you want to do steroids? Um, so typically in pediatrics, they don't recommend it. Um, there is some sources that are like you don't do it whatsoever. If you look at others, they recommend doing like hydrocortisone or Cortef, but only if you've gotten to the point where you're on two pressors and you're not responsive. So they call it like that catecholamine resistant shock. That's when you want to consider it. Um, the only other situation that I consider it, like or, or really the only situation I consider it early on before you're doing pressors is if the kid has some immunocompromised states such as a um, congenital adrenal hyperplasia. If they tell you they're on steroids every day, ask the family, what's your stress dose? Um, and if the family has no idea, um, you can find it on that chart pathway we talked about earlier. But if you you know, are good at numbers, if you're two years or under, give them 25 milligrams. If you're over 10 years, give them 100. If you're between that, give them 50. That's pretty much it. That's about the only time I'll do it. If you're on two pressors, still hypotensive, or if you are on um, hydrocortisone at home daily. And again, part of the reason I want to bring that up is adult sepsis world is moving more and more toward Cortef if you're on two pressors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it's something a lot of us here have done anecdotally for years. If you're getting a two pressors and it ain't working, we're just going to stress dose yeah. you. Um, but it seems to work really well in adults. And I know I've personally done it in kids a couple of times and it's made a big difference. Yeah. I feel like it is our practice in the pediatric emergency department. I feel like we're getting much better about using hydrocortisone, sorry, Cortef. Agree. In this instance. Working on through steroids, we've talked a lot about, you know, hemodynamic support and this, that, and the other. Let's talk a little bit about the fever part of this. Uh, a lot of these kids that are in septic shock are going to come in either hypothermic like we kind of talked about you got to warm them up make sure they stay warm keep them in blankets if you're using the infotherm mattress or something to keep them there um if they're cold you know put a hat on their head all, all the basic stuff that we tend to forget that's not near as cool or high speed as our lines but make sure you maintain a normal thermic state or get them back warm what if they've got a fever I'm treat it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, cause that alone is going to make your heart rate go up and make you think that your resuscitation is not working. You treat yeah. the fever and the fever goes down. That may give you your answer that you need. Right. I mean, not only does it, you know, kind of mask your assessment, but you guys talked about it in the thyroid episode. I know when I have a fever, I feel like crap. Yep. Um, and I would assume that they probably feel the same way, even though kids are probably a lot more resilient than the three of us are. Yeah. Um, I'm going to treat that fever with age-appropriate medications. You know, and if you don't know what that is, Tylenol or ibuprofen. Um, I, they're all 10 kilos, but on Tylenol, 10 per kilo. You, on Tylenol, you can go up to 15 per kilo, and that's the dose that we suggest. And if you've got someone who's vomiting who can't tolerate PO, don't be afraid to do suppositories if you have it. The only population that I say don't do suppository and actually think about IV Tylenol if you have it is um, cancer kids and neutropenic kids because they can't have anything per rectum, period, because you're going to increase your risk of um, gram-negative sepsis. Um, so usually you can't do oral, do rectal. I'm hoping that the IV Tylenol catches on a little more here at UMC. That would be great. That would be awesome. And, we, and, you know, we've been working on it, trying to figure out how to make it happen. I know for years, there are some places around the state that I already have IV Tylenol, have really good access to it. Um, cost has always been an issue with that, which is, I mean, it's all boils down to money, let's be honest. Yeah. But the other part of it is concentration. And some of the concentration doses that you can get it are not exactly conducive to peds. Right. Right. Um, just because of the sheer volume of what you're getting. So I, maybe if that'll change now that it's no longer proprietary to one manufacturer. Maybe we can start seeing it a little bit better. And the other thing with that, and I've had this question come up to me before from our own nurses and outside facilities. Say so they have, you know, they've got this septic shock child. This child is intubated for whatever reason. Oh, well, my only option is rectal Tylenol in that case. Not necessarily. You can place an OG tube or an NG tube and give medications through mm -hmm. that. Or child or a child that has G tube dependence or some other, you know, nutritional source, you know, that it's enteral you can give it that way as well um so don't let that be a hindrance to you treating fever with oral medications if that's what you have yeah as far as we've hit about fever vasopressors fluids antibiotics 
So you, you mentioned it earlier, fluids, maintain, you got a good hemodynamics and antibiotics. That's what's going to make a big difference here. Mm-hmm. As far as antibiotic regimens, managing those, again, now there are some people that are, I'm not going to give it until I get a culture. Let's just, let's just break it down as far as antibiotics. So healthy kid over a month old. Vank or seven, like period. That you know, give them hundred megs per keg of seven, give them fifteen megs per keg of vank, you, you're covered. Um, if you're worried about um, like immunocompromised kids, that population, just change out that R7 for cefepine. Easy enough. Um, the only population that I'm not going to do R7 in outside of that is going to be those like less than four week old infants. Um, re- relatively contraindicated. Um, so typically you go like amp fortas, you start going down that whole AP febrile infant stuff that we've talked about. But generally, um Rosefin bank or cefepine bank, those combinations will get you through just about anything. Right. And that's coverage across the spectrum too. Um almost everybody has Rosefin and Vank, so start there. And I mean, we don't carry bank on the airframe, but Maxapine or Cefepine is a great option um yeah. as well. Biggest thing is get it on board, get it on board early, yep. help, help fix your source problem. Don't just wait and say, oh, well, I can't give it until I get cultures or there's plenty of these kids, especially starting dealing with three or four months old that are already volume down. You're going to stick them 15 times just to try to, I say to 15, but you're going to stick them a lot just to try to get cultures to get something to draw back. Well, they're still volume depleted. Even if you give them two or three bolses, then you might be able to get them. And even right. to hammer that point home, there's enough literature especially in the surviving substance guidelines if you get antibiotics in within one hour their likelihood of surviving is going to go up tremendously the longer you wait the higher the morbidity mortality becomes so if you can't get a culture don't care just give those antibiotics that's what's going to save that kid right and you know not just thinking broad spectrums you may know exactly what the problem is and why they're septic they may have had you know appendicitis or whatever that was early when for whatever reason they decided oh we're just gonna kind of watch well now this child is in septic shock by all means zosin unison you know your gut drugs to take care of that source if you know the obvious source so you know while we still always and everybody will always encourage early broad spectrum don't be afraid to hone in if you were thinking something more specific So let's talk a, bit, a little bit more about some of the complex patients to deal with. And when I say that, I mean the patients that are already going down the hill. All right, we've, we've fluids, vasopressors, we're fixing our fever. We've talked about, all right, we got antibiotics. We got all this on board. We did really good in the first 20, 30 minutes. Kid's not getting any better. And now we're starting to have a respiratory component or we're starting to see our SATs decrease during perfusion, this, that, and the other. Let's bring up the airway management of these septic kids. As far as things to consider, things to think about, are there things you do different um, when you're managing these kids as far as airway management, whether it's invasive as far as intubation or we're talking about non-invasive with high flow, BiPAP, CPAP, all those fun things. What are some things you might consider early and what are the things you just, all right, this is what I'm going to have to do? So you kind of have to understand that, and most of us do and will, that this child or this patient is going to be a little bit more fragile. Um, we already know that children don't have the O2 reserves um, that adults do. And in a hypermetabolic state where they're, you know, in their tachypnic and all these other things are going on, that's going to be even less. So really, just from the start, you know, empiric oxygen therapy is fine. Like if you are concerned that this child has septic shock, increasing your O2 carrying capacity in the body is always going to help them. So if nothing else, just supplemental O2 through a nasal cannula or non-rebreather if you don't have anything else. Um, Then, you know, early high flow is definitely something I feel like we utilize more now um, because high flow has gotten so popular in the last few years. Um, I'm not saying that that's going to stave off, you know, positive pressure ventilation or intubation, but it can at least buy you some time to get things in order. um, And then maybe, it might can stave that off, but it can at least help push it back some um, and allow you to kind of get your sorts about you before you have to go down that pathway. Um, obviously, you know, in with any kind of, we start talking intubation with 
shock patients. You've got to be very leery of, you know, your hemodynamics. What are you about to do to them? Not only with the drugs you're about to push and how that's going to rob the catecholamines and just kind of send them over the edge. What are you about to do with the positive pressure in the chest and how is that going to affect the preload and all these different things they have going on? Um, you know, I consider airway management, definitive airway management early. Um, a ton of literature out there says that in that birth to about two to three year old range, approximately 30 to 40% of their cardiac output is dedicated to respiratory drive, right? Um, so if they're already in this extremist state, I know I need as much of that cardiac output to worry about perfusion as I can possibly get to devote to that. So us being able to take over the respiratory component is something that can potentially help you down the line. Yeah, I completely agree. If I once I identify a septic shock or sepsis even without the shock, I'm putting them on oxygen, low flow, non-rebreather, no matter what. If you're having respiratory distress, going to high flow, CPAP, BiPAP. I try to stave off the intubation as long as possible if they um, are like maintaining the airway and also if they're hypotensive. So talking about the um, hemodynamics, if the kid has a pulse and they're protecting their airway and they're hypotensive, do not intubate a hypotensive patient. You're going to massively change those hemodynamics and there's a high likelihood that kid's going to coat in front of you. Um, if you are at a point where you feel like you need to take the airway because the kid's just not oxygenating well, despite CPAP, BiPAP, all that kind of stuff, um, you're going to have like your RSI drugs ready. But in addition to that, consider like epi either before or uh, like as you're inducing to get that blood pressure up, make sure it looks better before you um, intubate or to be ready to code on intubation. Um, and then when you're doing your RSI, these are the ones where you're going to avoid accommodate. If you're a sepsis, no accommodate. Um, black box uh, warning on by FDA, adrenal suppression causing lot, uh, worse outcomes theoretically. So um, that'll be the one where you need to evaluate which meds you're going to give instead. Um, I think push depressors are super important. Epi's a lot more common in kids. We don't give it as much in adults, but that bradycardia associated with their respiratory rate, epi can be a big thing. You can use vaso, but it's not as commonly studied in kids. But there's nothing wrong to me. Even Okay, in theory, if you've got this kid that's hypoperfused, you should have already started pressures in the background before you get an intubation. Now, if you get some kid that walks in the ER, gets in the back of your ambulance, and is already basically in peri-arrest, respiratory failure, the biggest thing here is either start the infusions or start to push those pressures beforehand. Uh, something that I see or have seen over the years, people rely so hard and heavy on atropine because that was what they were all taught in PALS over the years. Yeah. Atropine can help you, um, but don't just think atropine is my only right. purple magical drug yeah. that can only do everything. Uh, think about the other things that you can have in combination with it, whether it's Levo, Epi, or Vaso, or whatever you have available to you. And this is one of those situations where if you are having to intubate and all that, when you're considering RSI, I love ketamine in this situation. You're going to get that catecholamine surge. You're going to bump that blood pressure up. That's going to help you out tremendously. So that, that'd be the one time I would consider first line uh, ketamine as part of your sedative for your RSI. Yeah, I'm a ketamine fan. Um, regardless, we use it a lot more in the transport world. I mean, we use it for sedation a lot in the ER, but um, this is definitely the go-to um, drug. And even fentanyl it can help you here as well. Um, yes, both of those medications can affect your hemodynamics depending on the dose that they are given. Um, so you kind of have to be careful how you balance that. But most of your new guidelines coming out will put ketamine as your first line, except in that, you know, infancy period, I think midazolam and uh, fentanyl are still a favor there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, absolutely. You're going to want to steer clear from Atomidate if at all possible. Um, I can't think of a reason why you wouldn't, unless that's literally the only thing you have left um, and you don't have a choice, but you need to make sure you relay that to somebody if that's what happens. Um, and it's one of those, if you do... I I'm saying what if to death, but if you if you do give atomidate, that's one of those. Okay, here's some cortif. Mm -hmm. Like I mean, yeah. think about it. I'm not a big fan of atomidate. I love atomidate in adults. Don't get me wrong, and I love it in bigger kids. I do not like it less than two. I try to stay away from it. My personal yeah. favorite are fentanyl and versed. That's what I've always done. Um, I'm slowly getting on ketamine. I was never a big ketamine fan, but I'm slowly getting there. But because it's dose dependent. Yeah. Um, make sure you're up to date when you're talking about ketamine dosing in these kids and fentanyl dosing in these kids, you're talking about the right dose. Um, that three milligrams per kilo of ketamine to a kid that's 
three months old is probably not a good idea. <laughs> um, make sure you're up to date with the current dosing of what we're doing. I, typically for me, I kind of nickel and dime it. I'll be honest. Yep. I, all you're trying to do is sedate them enough to make sure you facilitate the airway appropriately. So you don't make sure you can bag them appropriately. If you can bag them, it's not a filled airway, all that kind of fun thing. Give them just enough, just enough to where you can get them where you want them to be. Um, right. You'll see some ranges out there go from as low as like 0. 0.2, 0. 0.3 to as high as 1.5. My personal, I'll give like a, a 0. 0.5 mig per kig push, stop there, see how they're doing. Are they dissociated? Great, I'll stop. If they are not yet and they're still there, keep going to that one because they're, they're so much more unpredictable than adults. I feel like some kids yep. are super, super sensitive to it and they go down with half a dose and others you end up giving that full like one to 1.5 before they go down. So I usually place that nickel and dime it just a little half per kg pushes and see how they do with it. The last kit I did was one mic per kilo of fentanyl and 0.5 of ketamine. And then I gave Versed afterwards to keep them down and it worked perfectly. Mm -hmm. And to Nathan's point, I'm glad he brought this up. You know, a lot of the times when you're talking about, you know, emergency medicine, you don't like the term nickel and diming. This is one of those times I do. This is not or should not be a rapid sequence intubation. I hope we are getting rid of that term, and I feel like it is falling out of favor. This is de definitely one of those delayed sequence intubations where we're making sure we've got everything we need. You know, we're talking about push dose pressures up front. We're talking about, you know, all these other things, and we're giving a drug. We're getting that expected effect. You know, then we can move on to the next, then the next. Um so definitely don't think this is a, all right, ketamine, boom, rock, boom, do it. Not not a smart idea in this patient population. I don't even think a lot of these kids, you have to give the rock. Sometimes you do. Oh, yeah. Um, sometimes that's the way the kind of the cookie grumbles. But a lot of these kids, you can honestly just use sedation. If you do it slow and methodical and mm -hmm. kind of plan it out. There are very few of these cases to me where you're going to walk into a crash airway. I mean, for us, yeah. crash airways to find is, you know, true morbidity they're not going to survive without it uh basically they're going to rest or pretty dang close to it or they have an impeding fatal airway these are not usually those cases i mean this is a slow methodical process maybe you're late to the party you didn't get to see the first part but you can usually mitigate those effects whether it's high flow or bagging them through it until you get there right well is there anything else you want to talk about pete sepsis and we hit most of our topics most of the things that are as far as management and assessment um, I mean, we talk about, you know, we can sit here and talk about all the high speed stuff, all the cool drugs and everything. But I think going back to the beginning, and this is with any patient, you've got to be able to get a good history and get a good assessment on all of these kids. Um, you know, there can be subtleties that you miss that could really clue you in as to what's going on. Um, but get that, you know, 20 foot view. When you walk in the room, you're going to be able to know sick or not sick, right? And then what is not sick about them? You know, are they having to sit up and hold themselves up to breathe? Is this a little infant that, you know, is just floppy? You can't get them to do anything. Um, your feelers are going to go up for those kinds of kids. Then obviously, you know, the harder ones is that middle of the road, right? Where, you know, mom says these things, you know, she has these concerns and you're kind of getting this mixed picture. You need to get up there. You need to lay your hands on the patient. Use your monitor, obviously. But like Nathan said, numbers will lie to you. Mm -hmm. You need to really pay attention to what the child's doing. You need to put your stethoscope on them. You need to listen and kind of get an idea of what's going on. And then don't forget, like your basic interventions Will touched on, you know, if this is a hypothermic baby, please don't be afraid to warm them. Know that in this, you know, septic state, once you kind of get them rewarmed, that body tends to relax and that's when we see a lot of um, apnea in that newborn period um, and then apnea itself can be a sign of early sepsis because that's just the way the brain has dysregulated whatever infection organ infectious organism this is so you know the body will say oh well we don't need to breathe because of this but um, so kind of pay attention to that when you're rewarming um, you know your basics like your antipyretics supplemental o2 things that you do every day that you don't really think about being a part of a septic shock picture. You hear septic shock, and most people think, well, I got to get antibiotics on board, and they need a vasopressor. Well, that may be true, but there's a whole lot of stuff you can do before that that you may start correcting them and putting them on a path towards, towards success yeah. just if you paid attention early. Yeah, and then at least for me, and this is how I tend to teach residents especially, there's a whole ton of literature out there. There's a lot of stuff you can get lost in the weeds, but I like to – you know, when we're in ER, fast-paced, making quick decisions, dumb it down, right? Have your initial 
um, like one to two things to think of. So history, lay your hands on the kid. If you need fluids, normal saline, give them bolus, right? Uh, throw them on oxygen, antibiotics, vancrocephin, cephalhemorocephin. Uh, you need pressors, norepi, epi, and then if you start thinking second line, vaso. Um, and if at any point in that process, especially if you're in an area where you know you don't have all these resources that you like, you're anticipating needing, um, the moment you identify sepsis and start the initial workup, call us. That way we can get there and, and get y'all help. Right. And then, you know, everybody I think that listens to this podcast is either in the emergency medicine world or the transport world. Um, and we've touched on it on numerous episodes. Go back to the ABCs. A, B, C, D, all the way through it. If you get stumped, go back to A, B, C, D. Figure out where the alteration is there and intervene. The only thing, obviously, we've touched on here, I would add on maybe like temperature control and early antibiotics. Uh, yeah, that E, the environment part of that. Well, and then, okay, throw an extra letter on. Yeah, I mean, you know what? I just, yeah, we're nickel and diamond, right? Yeah. <laughs> the, other, the other part of that is I'd throw another part of that E in there is exposure. A lot of these kids... Taking that 20-foot 20, 20 view when you were talking about it a minute ago, I thought about it. I was like, all right, expose them. If you've got that four, five, six-year-old, get their clothes off, look at them. Hey, they may have something that mom or dad didn't see or haven't pulled on. There's something on their back. This, that, and they're sore, whatever, sepsis. Source that could be contributing to this is it something simple you could just outwardly see as well. And don't don't think that it sepsis can't hide behind other things. You know, we're in the middle of RSV season already. They can have RSV and have known they've had RSV for a week. Well, they come in and rest distress. Oh, well, this is just RSV. Well, is it? Or do they have this terrible, you know, gram negative or whatever pneumonia now that is really the underlying cause of the sepsis of it, on yeah. top of the RSV? So, yep. you know, you can get mixed pictures, but assess, pay attention. Yeah. Guys, appreciate your time. Thanks for your day as always. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice diagnosis or treatment the information is provided with no guarantee all content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute providing of medical legal or regulatory advice